Hello and welcome to a VJ Hemog podcast. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in hematological oncology. We're thrilled to present four experts discussing their opinions on the management of adult patients with acute leukemias and myeloid neoplasms in the COVID-19 era. In this panel discussion, Amir Zaydan from the Yale Cancer Center is joined by his colleagues, Jan-Philipp Buersdorf and Rory Schallis, as well as John Mascarenas of the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai to discuss methods of reducing nosocomial COVID-19 infections, the impact of the pandemic on clinical trial participation and resource allocation, and finally, the management of patients with ALL, CML, MPNs, MDS, and AML. Hi, everyone. My name is Amar Zaydan. Welcome to VG Hemonk, where we are talking today about the management of hematologic malignancy during the COVID era. My name is Amar Zaydan. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Yale University and the director of early hematology therapeutics research. And I'm joined here by uh, my colleagues, uh, Dr. John Mascaranis, Dr. Ian Boersdorf, and Dr. Rory Schallis uh, for uh, discussion of our paper that has been published in the Lancet Hematology uh, Journal, where we cover different aspects of management in general considerations and then go into the disease specifications. So I would start with uh, Dr. Mascaranis. Thanks, Amr, and thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. My name is John Mascarenas. I'm an associate professor of medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and I lead the adult leukemia program there and have a focus in um, MPN clinical research. Hi, thanks for the invitation again. Uh, my name is Rory Shallis, assistant professor uh, uh, at Yale. Um, my clinical focus is uh, acute leukemias and myeloid malignancies. Thanks again. Good morning, everyone. I'm Jan Bjorstorf. I'm a medical resident at Yale. Um, I've been working with Armour, and my main focus is on hematologic myeloid malignancies. And during the COVID pandemic, I also, as part of my residency training, took care of COVID patients uh, without hematologic malignancies in the ICU setting. And I'm hoping to share some of those experiences today. So maybe we can start with uh, with with John. Um, how, how did um, how was it uh, how was it like to be in the middle of this with really very little evidence on how to direct um, uh, management of patients, especially as being in charge of the leukemia group in in, uh, in your institution and having very little um, evidence to 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 go by. Um, I would say in one word, uh, overwhelming. So it was an overwhelming experience. And um, as, as many institutions have or, or are now currently experiencing, um, it was a, um, a rapid rise in admissions, um, both to the hematologic malignancy um, group, but also obviously the um, rest of the, the medicine floor. So within a very short amount of time, I would say within several weeks, our, you know, our entire hospital was essentially converted to a COVID hospital uh, in which only a very small fraction of patients without COVID were being cared for. Um, so the additional beds were built um, in the in the main hospital uh, floor, as well as um, a group built a tent in Central Park across um, from our hospital where patients were also diverted. And then patients were sent either to uh, the Javits Convention Center or to a, uh, a medical um, U.S. medical ship that was um, in the harbor that was also taking patients. So um, it was it was overwhelming. Uh, the pace was rapid, um, and there was unfortunately very little. Um, evidence driving many of our decisions at that time. And as you and I have discussed previously, fortunately, 
um, even in the short amount of time since the paper has been developed and published, there's, there's evolving literature that helps uh, perhaps guide us more effectively today than it did um, in April and May when we first started experiencing the pandemic. So I think some of uh, the main considerations that we were dealing with uh, in hematologic malignancies, I think um, two parts. One related to the nosocomial uh, spread of the infection and how do you handle the whole situation of having potentially asymptomatic patients or asymptomatic providers and the concern about spreading that within the hospital, which was, of course, compounded by the fact that many of our patients are immunocompromised and they are probably more susceptible to the infection based on on uh, uh, the published experience at that time and the management of the blood transfusion, which got complicated, I think, by uh, this pandemic. So maybe I will uh, let Yan uh, as someone who really has been on the front lines, uh, on the medicine front, where a lot of those issues are also very important, talk about the experience uh, and how this has been going on. Thanks, Amr. Um, yeah, as you as already mentioned, um, with hematologic malignancies and also solid uh, oncology patients, the early data from China showed that there was a three to four-fold increased mortality of those patients. And so what we tried to do is that we try to conserve resources and trying to really protect our um, cancer patients, both hematologic and solid malignancies from the um, COVID floors um, to uh, prevent the nosocomial spread of the infection. So if I can give you the example of what we did here at Yale um, is that we converted um, regular units to dedicated COVID floors. Um, we uh, did some engineering adjustments to divert the airflow, creating negative pressure units uh, for COVID patients, while the hematology patients, they were on a dedicated unit with positive pressure. And what was also essential is to um, have dedicated staff. So one, one provider is only assigned to either a dedicated COVID floor or a dedicated non-COVID floor. And I think that has been uh, an experience that other places have also implemented. And um, what is essential there is that you need to know a patient's COVID status. So when I started, uh, and we, my first COVID patient was back in March, and at that point, the turnaround time for the COVID testing was around probably five to seven days, which makes it really difficult to um, kind of um, allocate the patients to the, to the appropriate floor. Um, but then over time, the testing capacities increased, the testing turnaround time decreased significantly. And nowadays at Yale, all patients get tested in the emergency department already when they come in. And, and we have the results in probably two to maybe four hours, which is essential that we can really assign patients to the appropriate unit. And this is an experience that, like, as Dr. Mascarena has pointed out, like, there's a lot of progress being made in just a few weeks to months. 
Yeah, that's that's a very um, great perspective, and I I think one of the challenges talking to many of my colleagues across the country, especially in areas where they were hit really hard, basically that this idea of trying to geographically cluster patients in different floors or even to have providers who are only seeing patients who are COVID positive or negative is probably not as feasible everywhere because of the limitations on geography and the limitations on the number of the uh, providers. So uh, what has your experience been, uh, John, in, in, in this, I think, important logistical issue of where to, to try out the patients and where to, how to handle the staffing? Yeah, so as, as Jan pointed out, we also uh, over time adopted a, a policy in which um, certain floors were relegated to, to COVID patients only, and we uh, desperately tried to keep our, our hemolignancy patients, particularly our transplant patients, segregated, and that meant um, nursing staff and physician staff uh, would attend to those and, and eventually not also um, concurrently see uh, COVID-positive patients. So we did, we were able to, to follow a similar um, approach. Um, and um, as Jan pointed out, um, as, the, as the pandemic progressed and our capabilities improved, our turnaround time for, for testing improved um, and our ability to effectively uh, implement this segregated uh, approach was, was obvious. And I, and I do think that we saw um, a significant decrease in what probably was nosocomial transmission of the disease initially, um, which you know, we, we weren't necessarily appreciating. We, we adopted a policy that any patient um, that's still in place, any patient that's being admitted um, for therapy or for an elective admission needs within 48 hours to have uh, neg negative COVID testing by PCR nasal swab. Um, and in some cases, we even repeat it twice um, to make sure that it's, it's truly negative. Um, and what we've seen is, um, is that we've been effectively able to reduce um, in now in July of 2020, reduce our, our COVID um, admission rates uh, significantly. So most patients that are being admitted are documented to be COVID negative. It's actually rare right now in New York City to have a COVID positive admission. Um, so we do get patients that come in for various reasons that um, perhaps non-hematologic malignancy patients that um, have an incidental COVID um, test that's positive. But right now, thankfully, the, the rate of actual COVID admissions is quite low. Yeah, and I think, John, you bring up uh, I think, uh, an important point in, in terms of like the rapidly changing nature of this epidemic in terms of geography. And so you are going into phases in which the systems are almost close to being overwhelmed, where you have so many patients in, uh, initially in New York and Connecticut, and then things got much better where we are seeing very few patients in, 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 in the inpatient or the outpatient uh, units. But then you're... Uh, resource allocation and staffing and procedures then have to adapt and all of that change. So I, I think that brings me to talking a little bit more about resource allocation. Maybe uh, Rory can, can tell us more about some of the experience that uh, people in, in areas that are being hit hard right now, and whether in the south of the US or other countries like Brazil or other areas um, in terms of how, how could they help uh, or benefit from that experience. So, I mean, recent, I mean, obviously quite recent resource allocation efforts, uh, particularly for some centers with an increased burden, like uh, at least our, our center a few months ago, fortunately, we're in a better spot. And, you know, most definitely, you know, John Center down at Sinai um, had at least for quite some time prioritized the care. And as Jan had kind of mentioned, um, for patients with COVID-19, I mean, difficulties are likely to arise in centers that are 
kind of already stretched thin uh, with regards to uh, infrastructure, uh, other material resources, and unfortunately, you know, finances. Um, I mean, these issues are likely to affect the care of patients with other medical um, conditions, which, you know, uh, including those that are serious, like those with hematological malignancies. Um, and uh, similar to patients on, you know, clinical trial, which I think, you know, we could talk about in a little bit, um, these patients may have, uh, uh, not may, but are likely to have delays and timely uh, lab testing, uh, and of course, delays, uh, interruptions, uh, abbreviations, and even in some cases, a discontinuation of treatments like chemotherapy, as well as uh, surgical, and I guess in some cases, uh, radiation uh, planning and administration. This can altogether, unfortunately, affect uh, long-term outcomes, and potentially, uh, uh, that also includes the likelihood of cure in some patients, unfortunately. Um, so with regards to, I guess, how to approach this, the overarching goal is, is, of course, to put patients in the best position to, you know, achieve these long-term outcomes and, and, and cure. Um, so with regards to resource allocation, uh, you know, one of the unfortunately highlighted points more recently has been, forgive the term, but the rationing of interventions, which some of which can be life-saving. Um, Connecticut, New York, obviously in a better spot, uh, it looks like these days. Um, but in some cases, standard of care options, um, or I guess we'll talk a little bit like optimal clinical trial uh, options for some patients with, say, a, you know, if an older patient with poor disease characteristics that is otherwise, uh, ha, you know, has exhausted uh, any further disease-directed care, um, you know, might be in a, in a rougher spot, and, and some providers might consider uh, that more of a, a futile situation, unfortunately. Um, so again, a lot of moving parts and, uh, I guess the, the overarching message, it, it has to be individualized, even though a lot of centers do have protocols that kind of dictate the mechanisms by which patients receive some of these fragments of care. And I think Jan's going to, you know, at some point touch on the general ethical considerations, uh, and then more day-to-day -day stuff like blood product transfusion, um, considerations or protocols, um, that sure. each center might, you know, kind of, uh, implement. So before we expand more on clinical trial and blood transfusion, I, I just want to stick a little bit with, um, with the resource allocation. And I think one of the things that helped in, 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 in managing this pandemic and trying to reduce the chance of our patients being infected, but also to try to maintain some care is the introduction, or not necessarily the introduction, but the wider use of telemedicine. Um, you know, telemedicine um, is great in the sense that it allows the patient to be evaluated without necessarily being able to come to the center. But in contrast to other specialties where uh, the patient needs could be probably managed remotely, um, I think in our specialty dealing with patients with hematologic malignancies, even if you do telemedicine, there are a lot of things such as blood transfusions, chemotherapy administration, management of complications that would still require the patient to come in and also the logistical front of, uh, you know, having to set up all these changes in logistical regulatory um, processes and even things like billing and things like that uh, to go to, uh, you know, virtual format has been quite difficult and a very, I think, uh, sharp um, learning curve. So maybe, John, you can tell us about your experience of that switch to limit, uh, telemedicine and some of that resource allocation, how that um worked out uh, for you and your center? Yeah, I think that's a that's a very important point. So prior to the pandemic, I had never really engaged in telemedicine. Um, and then rapidly during the pandemic, we adopted a, um, 
a um, strategy in which patients with uh, typically with chronic myeloid leukemias, whether it was CML, essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia viral, in some cases, myelofibrosis, um, and even myelodysplastic syndrome patients were, um, were seen um, through telehealth uh, visits um, and then were, um, were directed either to a local laboratory for um, their blood counts um, and or had um, home testing arranged by um, certain agencies um, so that we could try to limit the exposure of the exposure of the patient um, to the cancer center, but also um, vice versa, the exposure of the cancer center to uh, to patients coming in out and their family members. We adopted a strict policy also of only the patient was allowed to come up to the, the cancer units. Um, unfortunately, loved, loved ones um, were not unless it was a, um, you know, a, a, a dire necessity to have a, um, a spouse or a loved one to accompany the patient. The same was true on the, on the inpatient side. In fact, many of the consult services, um, such as hematology consults and infectious disease consults were done through telehealth visits. Um, um, so that they could um, also ex reduce the exposure in and out of the patient's room. So there was a clear um, shift in, which actually still persists today to some extent, shift in um, care of the patients, um, which I, I firmly believe will outlast this pandemic. So I think there has been a realization or a, um, an acceptance that, that to some degree, a certain degree of care that we provide our patients does not necessarily require them to be physically in the cancer center for each visit. Um, but it's not true across the board. So obviously for our patients with acute leukemia, in which the care often requires um, point of care, um, in-person uh, management, whether it's transfusional support um, or uh, injection of growth factor or whatever else, um, or evaluation of uh, neutropenic fever, um, there are patients that um, can, um, can be um, seen through a telehealth uh, modality and, um, and then perhaps um, less frequently um, in order to reduce travel and exposure to mass transit um, and exposure in the cancer center. So that is, that is something that was new to our group. In fact, we, have, we are embarking uh, with several institutions, including Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, University of Texas at San Antonio, and perhaps Cleveland Clinic, a multi-center randomized phase three study evaluating telehealth um, interventions in patients with um, chronic diseases like myeloproliferative neoplasms with a control arm, which is standard of care, um, to look at outcome measures of interest such as um, as um, stress by stress thermometers that are validated um, and outcomes such as infection, hospitalization rate, um, change in therapy, et cetera. So um, I think the, the, the world in which we have lived previously with um, in-person care is going to change to some extent. And I think as you all probably anticipate, um, even though we are fortunate right now that uh, New York and Connecticut um, has a low rate, the assumption is that with time it will, it will increase again um, until there's effective um, you know, prevention or, or vaccination. So we are preparing that this will, this will continue and, the, and or, or other pandemics may, may arise and that there will be a shift in the oncology care model um, going forward in which there will be less emphasis on in-person in -person care. Our hope is, of course, that some of the regulatory resilience and accommodation that happened because of the pandemic that I think facilitated a lot of the aspects related to telemedicine hopefully will persist because there were like a lot of exceptions made by the states and the federal government and CMS and um, I suspect the same happened across the world uh, that I think will be important to kind of um, retain in some capacity after the epidemic pandemic. Uh, and passes basically to be able to continue to do virtual medicine on a on a larger scale. So, uh, yeah, one of the aspects that cannot be done really um, 
virtually by telemedicine is blood transfusions or blood product transfusions, which are essential uh, for the management of patients with hematologic malignancies, whether on the inpatient and the outpatient front, and not really only for patients with hematologic malignancies, but many patients with surgery, trauma, medical conditions. So uh, maybe you can give us some insights into how the blood uh, blood banks and transfusion services have tried to manage uh, some of the challenges that were brought up uh, you know, by this pandemic in terms of blood transfusions. As you already mentioned, like doing induction chemotherapy or bone marrow transplant uh, without transfusion support is, uh, is virtually impossible um, given the profound cytopenias that are caused by chemotherapy or even the underlying disease um, on top of it. So, and I think it's important to keep in mind that this has two aspects. So one is the recipient of the blood product and the other one is the safety of the donor. So um, one of the struggles in the beginning and probably in other parts of the world right now still is that we want to protect the donor from the exposure to the healthcare system. Um, they have to come into a transfusion center, they get exposed to other donors, they got to exposed to the staff, they have to be there for a certain period of time and the travel to that center. And then on the other hand, um, it was unclear if, and it still is somewhat unclear, if uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus can be transmitted uh, via blood. So, so far there have been no reported cases of blood-borne transmission. So that seems to be a, um, less, of a, a less of a pertinent issue. So um, what strategies that have been adopted here in the United States has been um, related to donor deferral and that had been in, in place in the past if you had traveled, if you had uh, HIV, uh, hepatitis C. So some regulations um, uh, that regard have changed. Um, men who have sex with men, um, some of those policies have changed to increase the donor pool. That's for the donor front. And then on the other hand, uh, the recipient side, um, what we've been um, trying to adopt here and what we've been discussing in the, in the paper and what we should always preface uh, with, the, with saying that this is like crisis standard of care, which should be um, adapted to the local um, situation at hand. So we, there's clear data that show that the hemoglobin goal of seven to maybe eight for some patients, especially with underlying cardiovascular disease, is sufficient, and overtransfusion can actually be harmful. Um, so we've been advocating for um, keeping those strict uh, transfusion guidelines and maybe considering, as, as John pointed out, um, to maybe reduce the uh, frequency of clinic visits by giving um, growth factor support, uh, ESA, um, and then maybe at one point giving two units rather than one and trying to spread out the frequency of uh, transfusion intervals. Um, and another especially important point are platelet transfusions because platelets have a much shorter shelf life, only uh, 
three to four days and until they need to be transfused. So those have been more of an issue rather than the red cell supply. And, um, and there's some, uh, some consideration to really reduce the need for prophylactic platelet transfusion. And if really the supply is really short, uh, to tr uh, transition to more of a um, as needed transfusion strategy if someone is uh, uh, is bleeding or is uh, is requiring an um, an interventional um, procedure. Yeah, so all of these are great points, Ian, and I I have to again emphasize. We keep emphasizing in every juncture of this talk that a lot of these. Uh, factors are really different based on geographic locations. I actually heard from some of our colleagues in Europe during the, while we were working on this consensus paper that some, some of the countries did not experience shortages in uh, blood transfusions. And one of the explanations what that was given in some of the countries that had complete lockdown is that one of the exceptions in which you can leave your home was if you were going to donate blood. So, so that might have provided some incentive for you know, additional blood donations. And I, I do think that this is um, something that people have to think about in terms of do you adjust your blood transfusion practices if your blood supply, of course, is shortened? So um, some of those decisions about when to use prophylactic or not use prophylactic transfusions and all of that should be taken, of course, in the context of the blood uh, shortage supply and in coordination with the blood bank and the institutional policies and, and all of that. Uh, Rory, another aspect uh, that you hinted on earlier, uh, and I think was affected very significantly during this pandemic, uh, in general, but also for patients with hematologic malignancies is a clinical trial participation. Maybe you can give us more and, um, info, you know, from your insights about um, how, how clinical trial participation has been affected and what are the factors that should be considered when centers are reopening and what type of trials they should be focusing on? Sure. So, I mean, uh, you nailed it. I mean, the operations of trials have, um, I'd say undoubtedly been disrupted. Um, this is due to a multitude of factors, not only work from home orders, other social distancing orders instituted by many centers, which, you know, a lot of these, these centers that have pretty robust uh, clinical trial portfolios are in areas that were pretty heavily hit. Um, but uh, in addition, a lot of the, the laboratories um, that are really necessary for uh, really integral to for PK studies or correlative studies, um, that have instituted similar mitigation efforts uh, were, and in some cases are still closed. Um, I mean, further and unsur unsurprisingly, actually, you know, active trial patients can unfortunately contract the virus and develop COVID-19 severe cases, which uh, can just, you know, of course, uh, further upset or disrupt trial events and, and even standards of care. Um, so you kind of alluded to it, but uh, ultimately many trials uh, were suspended to enrollment um, in in this new era, which I'd say maybe, again, we can only speak to really Connecticut and, and, and New York a, a bit more faithfully, um, uh, the key emphasis, and appropriately so, has been uh, on patient safety. Um, the FDA and Health Canada, and I think a few of the, the bodies in Europe have offered sort of uh, published guidelines in this regard, um, essentially describing uh, the mechanisms of safe uh, trial conduct. Um, but as you know, as you just said, fortunately, some centers, like our own, in light of available data, suggesting that these mitigation strategies 
can be effective or reopening, um, opening to accrual, uh, accrual um, many trials uh, within the portfolio. Um, though you know, you'd ask what considerations have to be heeded with regards to how to navigate at this juncture. Um, so, I mean, I would say uh, the perceived uh, disease space priority um, is one, and of course, infrastructure. Um, so uh, I think many providers would kind of uh, agree that uh, the population most likely to benefit, at least in the immediate term, of course, fingers crossed, um, are those patients with relapse refractory disease for whom there are, you know, essentially not a lot of favorable options uh, at that point in their disease course. Um, as opposed to a trial that, uh, you know, by chance could randomly assign a patient to get standard of care therapy, but now also has to, has to accept the, uh, not only the inconvenience, but also the, you know, the theoretical risks of having, uh, you know, increased blood draws, trial events, and just uh, as John had said, overall uh, healthcare exposure, um, which of course, as we know, can at this point increase your risk of, uh, you know, the uh, contracting the infection. So, uh, uh, our center is starting to reopen uh, many of the trials that, you know, of course, had to go through a process of kind of discussions about which ones have, you know, more of a more priority in this case. It sounds like, you know, John and, and Sinai are doing the same. Um, so this is evolving and uh, we, I believe for the better, maybe someone else can kind of uh, provide more insight, but I, I do think this is improving over time. Great points. I don't know if John, do you, do you want to talk more about your experience in terms of, I anticipate that some of your trials have also, or all of them have been shut down at one point. And how did you go about the process of choosing which trials, um, thinking about different diseases, thinking about, you know, phase three versus phase one versus a lot of visits versus control arms. Uh, so what were your thinking and uh, strategies to prioritize trials? Yeah, so at, at one point the institution was, was um, directing uh, what was allowed uh, from a clinical research perspective um, and um, I suspect oncology was treated differently than some of our other colleagues um, in which perhaps the, the consequences of the disease were not as significant and therefore the, the intervention was not considered as, um, as necessary. So in, in our institution, we were allowed um, with, um, with uh, written, written justification to the um, institution, we were allowed to maintain patients on clinical trials in which there were no uh, alternative best um, care options that they could receive locally. Um, and we limited the, the visits to those that ensured safety. Uh, we eliminated um, efficacy evaluations like, like MRIs or bone marrow biopsies that wouldn't change the, the course of their care necessarily. Um, so it was really a pared down um, a version of, of what the trial, how the trials were originally written. And of course, there was agreement from the sponsors and the FDA. This was all uh, coordinated, actually, I thought, quite effectively. Um, so, for example, if it was a, an early phase study, um, we were not subjecting patients to multiple PK draws throughout the day. That would have been inappropriate. So we would just get whatever safety information was needed, um, dispense the medication. For some studies in which uh, the patients had been enrolled for quite some time and were you know, stable as assessed by the investigator, we were allowed to actually um, send medication, which we are normally never allowed to do, uh, oral medication that is, to the patient um, and conduct telehealth visits um, and get local laboratory um, um, evaluation. So that, that enables to maintain patients on studies. And then ultimately we prioritized um, the way in which we now open studies and, and, and have um, approached our studies. If they are randomized phase three studies uh, in which there is a control arm, which is standard of care, um, those studies are not prioritized over studies, for example, that are for, um, as pointed out previously, relapse refractory patients in which there's no, um, no viable 
you know, uh, commercial option for those patients. So those patients, um, you know, are deemed uh, more at risk from their disease and therefore um, more likely to benefit from an intervention like a clinical trial. And we're allowed to enroll again, um, trying to minimize um, uh, interventions or visits um, that really didn't contribute to their um, safety. Um, and that has um, revolutionized the way we, we've approached historically clinical trials. Um, how that will, and we're slowly rolling that back now, but how that will play out over the next three months, six months, or, or a year is not quite clear because even um, things that um, we all take for granted, like um, you know, sponsor-directed um, monitoring visits in which a clinical trial CRO would come to your institution and, and you know, evaluate your, your regulatory documents and your, your medical record now is all done remotely. Um, so there are many different changes in the clinical trial world um, that I think have actually been quite effective. Um, and, and again, I think it, it also exposes um, something that we now realize that there are things that we had done previously that probably are not essential uh, to the care of patients uh, on clinical trials and could be done remotely and could be done in different ways. So I do think this experience um, has taught us um, from a research perspective how to adapt um, to changing times and, and that will probably endure is my guess. Um, but um, we are now in the process of um, opening up our full um, clinical trial portfolio and um, we are keeping vigilant to how the pandemic may change and then perhaps we would have to go back to um, closing certain studies and prioritizing again. Maybe I will add that some of our agents that we work with in Heme Onc in general actually might have potential to help in COVID. And some of those agents have been repurposed actually uh, um, to try to uh, be used basically in COVID patients. So I think that also has been an interesting aspect of how things uh, have gone. So I think in the last 10 minutes or so, I'll try to focus um, a little bit on the specific diseases and I, uh, I think two general points here um, after discussing all those general aspects is again that you know um, all of those discussions that we make in the paper and uh, recommendations um, basically should be individualized according to the specific epidemiological nature in, in the specific area. As we mentioned there's a lot of variation that goes in the number of the cases and the adjustments that have to be made and I think the second point as was pointed out at the beginning is that all of those are based on experience uh, and uh, theoretical considerations from, I would say, highly experienced providers who work with these diseases on, on a routine basis, but without a lot of evidence to direct these recommendations. So some of those probably will change over time as more evidence um, comes across. Our hope, of course, is that this whole virus, we are going to have some curative therapy and hopefully all these discussions become more of a uh, historical uh, points for the future, but although they could be helpful if a new virus evolves. But uh, I think these are important things to think about. So maybe I'll start with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And again, just some high-level alterations. Um, this is not meant to discuss any in any kind of depth, but some of the considerations that the providers can think about when they have a patient with acute lymphoblastic uh, leukemia. Maybe, Rory, you, you want to chip in? Uh, sure. I mean, just to keep it uh, high level, maybe just to kind of lump patients that have acute leukemia in general, just to spare some of the specifics with AML patients. But generally, uh, again, this is as Jan and everyone seems to be saying, it's really predicated upon the level of crisis in a certain area um, that if possible, and if, you know, uh, the multitude of factors otherwise align right, we do 
recommend the consideration for the delaying uh, of therapy um, if, if it is otherwise uh, possible. However, if a patient is intended to be treated, um, I know it's the case at our center, it's you know protocolized, and I would imagine at many other uh, centers, it's the same. We recommend testing pretty much all patients, even if asymptomatic um, for the virus uh, prior to treatment initiation. Um, negative result, great. I mean, the testing is RT-PCR. I mean, sensitivity rate as low as 70%, but upwards of 98%, which is why sometimes more than one test is otherwise uh, uh, recommended. If the result is positive, then generally we kind of uh, say, you know, we delay for 10, 14, uh, 14 days, you know, which is, I guess, uh, uh, kind of twofold. One, it's sufficient time to, uh, to allow reasonable recovery from non-severe illness, but also uh, quarantine. <laughs> Um, we have seen patients with uh, prolonged positive results for which we just really, again, recommend delaying if still possible. There are, I'd say, two general exceptions. One, uh, not to get too specifics, but, uh, you know, uh, intrathecal therapy um, for which, you know, there's really no risk of uh, inducing deep and protracted cytopenias. Um, and, uh, of course, patients that otherwise can't wait, that can't have their treatment delayed. Um, so just keeping it high level. Uh, a lot of the age and fitness related kind of considerations with regards to dose reductions, such as anthracyclines for ALL patients or, uh, you know, uh, pegasparaginase, you know, an essential compound for the treatment of ALL, uh, these still apply. I guess some of the other high level considerations that we do touch upon in the publication are uh, the use of uh, anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies, which just to, I'd say, again, this is sort of a priori, but uh, really avoid uh, any additional immunosuppression that could be induced by these therapies for a disease that is CD20 positive. And I guess with regards to ALL, it's really essentially how much therapy can you get away with, but still maintaining a, you know, a good depth of response. And a lot of this is really centered around uh, measurable residual disease or MRD. How many cycles uh, of chemotherapy can you really get by with? You know, is it is two enough or you know, how much consolidation or intensification is necessary um, in some cases. And again, it's still individualized, but uh, I'd say we do recommend if a patient can, you know, is MRD negative and can sort of move forward with the maintenance phase of disease, which can last up to 2.5 years, um, you know, for an older patient and maybe dose reducing steroid or, you know, avoiding vincristine altogether. Those are some of the considerations we do touch upon specifically, um, even though I know, I mean, the use of corticosteroids, this is sort of changing. You know, early data suggested this is probably, it might even be uh, worse for patients that are older with the disease, but now as we're aware, it might, there is some benefit in severely ill patients that are hospitalized and ventilated or require oxygen. So um, I'd say those are some of the higher level considerations, not even getting into the, the role for transplant, which I, I think most would still say for patients that have ALL and have Relapse refractory disease, getting them to transplant when they're in remission and avoiding delay um, uh, is still, you know, the, probably the best uh, the best option for these patients. Yeah, so all of those are great considerations. And I think some of the basic principles that we generally have, again, to, to stick in is that generally, for, you know, you think about patients as, you know, curative intent therapy or non-curative intent therapy. And generally, with curative intent therapy, while you are trying to reduce the risk of the myelosuppression and the risk of infection for patients. At the same time, you don't want to um, alter in, in a regimen that has been uh, associated with, uh, you know, chance of cures. I think that has to be taken into the context of what's the goal of the treatment. I think some alterations in those regimens in situations where you are going for non-curative therapy are easier than when you are going for curative therapy. One of the things I think that you could 
also, and you touch on, on this, is um, allogenic bone marrow transplant in many institutions because of the resources, because of the needs uh, of those patients have been uh, delayed in some patients. And I think um, continuing, for example, if someone is getting hyper-CVAD, continuing beyond two cycles, four cycles, to try to get the patient an, an additional two, three months uh, of therapy until things settle down and you can get to transplant is another thing. I think the use of growth factors is an area that we had a very robust debate within our um, group, uh, within the um, not only within ALL, but in, in general. So I think for GCSF, for the um, use of basically the uh, granulocyte stimulating factor, there was some concern that you know this might potentiate or increase uh, the impact of COVID in, in some patients if they do contract it. However, uh, the advantage, of course, is shortening the duration of neutropenia and infections. And I think this is an unresolved area. It presents, I think, a very good uh, place um, in which we really need more evidence. Um, but I think the general approach is not to minimize therapy, except in situations where uh, it's really, uh, there's a significant uh, resource issue. And the second point is uh, to try to closely counsel these patients uh, about those, uh, some of those uh, changes uh, and try to um, minimize, I think, uh, interventions or disruptions of interventions such as delaying bone marrow transplant as much um, as possible. A lot of these apply to AML as well in terms of the issue of delaying therapy, for example, is, is I think we realize more with time that you can delay therapy in some patients with AML, but of course not in all patients and the same applies for ALL. So there are patients who are, you are going to need to start treatment even on the same day or the next day uh, because the clinical situation calls for it. Um, I you know, we still don't really know what is uh, COVID uh, course in a patient who happens to have it if you, they receive induction therapy. And I think out of abundance of caution, our recommendation, and those are in lines, I have to point here that there are actually growth, uh, great resources from the American Society of Hematology uh, on their website about some of those recommendations. And there have been several papers aside from our paper, uh, you know, uh, presenting some of these recommendations. Uh, I think there is a general sense that it's better to delay therapy if you can, if the clinical situation allows it, till the patient recovers from a COVID infection. Although we still don't know uh, if the patient had, you know, had the, the infection, whether things would worsen, but our assumption that would be the case. Um, John, do you have any um, opinion to add on, on the management of acute leukemia patients in, in this setting? No, I mean, I think I, I totally agree with what's, uh, what's been said. And we, we also took a risk-adapted approach. And, um, for example, if you were an elderly unfit patient with AML, um, we would uh, we would try to delay therapy or um, you know or manage with a hypomethylating agent. If you were uh, a fit person with ALL, um, for example, a pH positive ALL, uh, we resorted to using um, steroids and TKI to try to induce a remission and minimize the amount of myelosuppression, uh, in which maybe historically we wouldn't have tried that approach. So we 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 were um, we adapted our our approach as you as you pointed out. Um, I think this is quite different than, uh, for example, the, the chronic myeloid malignancies that we see that are typically outpatient. Uh, for patients, for example, with um, essential thrombocythemia, polycythemia vera, I really tried to um, delay their uh, return to the uh, cancer center unless it was imminent and use telehealth visits. In some cases, we, we allowed for a little bit more um, uh, flexibility with the, the goal hematocrit for polycythemia vera patients or, or increase the 
the, the site reductive therapy like hydroxyurea to try to control the counts uh, better during this period. Uh, we rarely initiated new therapies during the pandemic, um, and we advised patients who were on chronic therapies not to discontinue therapies. Um, I think there's some particularly interesting considerations as it relates to MPNs um, and what you brought up about repurposing drugs. Um, first, I'll mention that you know many of our patients also take interferon alpha, uh, which is, if anything, a pro-inflammatory um, drug. So that posed some concern that that could exacerbate um, um, the outcome of patients who have um, COVID, in which we now realize and appreciate um, is a quite hyperinflammatory um, syndrome that drives um, the pulmonary compromise and the multi-organ dysfunction um, driven by cytokines that are um, pro-inflammatory, such as IL-1, IL-6, TNF-alpha, and others. And many of these are also um, part of the pathogenesis of, of myeloid malignancies, particularly MPNs, um, and the focus of um, therapeutic intervention. So, uh, we use uh, ruxolitinib and now fedratinib um, in the U.S. to address patients with um, with uh, higher risk myelofibrosis or uh, refractory polycythemia vera. Um, it's used frequently now in, uh, in the setting of transplant to uh, mitigate graft-versus-host disease. Um, and what we appreciate with these drugs is, um, for now a number of years, is that they're very potent anti-inflammatory drugs that downregulate the uh, inflammatory milieu that drives a lot of the complications um, surrounding MPNs. And um, um, a report out of China, out of uh, multiple centers in a, in a um, randomized fashion that was not blinded, um, comparing ruxolitinib um, to a placebo vitamin C pill and keeping standard of care in place in patients with severe COVID in, uh, in China, uh, suggested that there was, in, in fact, some um, efficacy in terms of um, limiting the the amount of complications of progression to uh, ventilatory support um, and reducing um, biomarkers of, of inflammation such as CRP and ferritin that are highly, um, highly uh, regulated in patients who are quite sick with the disease. Um, and this is translated now into a randomized phase three study uh, in patients with severe COVID infection uh, with uh, ruxolitinib and also um, perhaps interestingly, um, the PREVENT study, which is a randomized phase three study, a global study using procritinib, which is a novel um, but unapproved JAK2 uh, inhibitor that also inhibits um, IL-1 receptor associated kinase and would reduce the inflammasome um, component that again is, is contributing to the hyperinflammatory state that leads to um, you know, this pulmonary um, compromise that we see. And importantly, um, you know, a topic that we didn't really address is the, the fact that there seems to be an intersection between inflammation and thrombosis that occurs. And there's now multiple reports of both microvascular and macrovascular um, thrombotic events um, in terms of um, deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and even strokes, uh, particularly in patients you would not expect them like uh, younger patients. Um, and for that reason, in our institution too, we um, have approached um, the care of these patients that meet certain parameters of severe disease with, uh, with um, prophylactic uh, low molecular weight heparin, either 30 or 40 milligrams twice a day of Lovenox. Um, and there are studies that would suggest that that, that may uh, reduce the, the complications surrounding uh, thrombosis, which again, I think is intimately linked to inflammation. So we still have a lot to learn. Um, but I, I would presume you will see increasingly, if you look at clinicaltrials.gov, you will see increasingly the use of um, or re reappropriation of drugs that we use in our fields, actually, uh, for the treatment of, and prevention of COVID. I think this brings up some of the challenges, again, that we have with hematologic malignancy, that issue of the thrombosis and the use of, um, you know, uh, anticoagulation that you brought up, which 
I think many institutions are using either prophylactic or full doses in many of those patients. And of course, many of our patients with hematologic malignancies, especially the acute uh, leukemias, have very low platelets. And we struggled with this question basically when the patient is very thrombocytopenic and they had a severe COVID infection, what do you do in terms of anticoagulation? So I think that's another area that I think requires some 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 significant research. Um, you know, I, I think we covered the acute leukemias and the chronic leukemias in general. And I would add a little bit of uh, about dysplastic syndromes here where, um, you know, as, as we know, myelodysplastic syndromes are generally divided into higher risk and lower risk. And with the lower risk myelodysplastic syndromes, the goal of therapy generally is on quality of life and minimization of complications. So trying to distance uh, those patients from the care centers, I think, has been important. Some of the aspects we've been trying to do along the lines of what was mentioned is to try to space up the blood transfusions as long as it's safe. Some institutions use a hemoglobin of eight or seven. So consideration of using a more stringent hemoglobin level as long as the patient doesn't have significant cardiac risks or other factors that would necessitate more frequent transfusions. Trying to use two units of blood transfusion rather than one. Uh, considerations in the use of prophylactic platelet transfusions, the use of uh, prophyla- uh, the use of erythropoiesis stimulating agents to try to improve the anemia and minimize the need to come for transfusions, and also probably in some patients who don't have severe cytopenias, more consideration to delaying therapy because many of those patients, if their cytopenias are not severe, they can potentially be uh, delayed and have blood work remotely without coming to the bigger centers where they might be at more risk of uh, contracting the infections. Um, For high-risk patients, they are generally treated um, in many ways aggressively, like um, AML, in which the treatment is generally, we try not to delay it for a long time. We do the same practice of trying to check for COVID uh, carriers, basically, before we start treatment. And ideally, if the patient happens to have uh, positive PCR, delay the treatment by a couple of weeks or, or until clearance, if possible. Um, generally with those patients, the treatment with hypomethylating agents uh, is outpatient, so those patients generally don't need to be hospitalized. Um, The same considerations about blood transfusions and minimizing uh, those to the the extent that is possibly can be done without compromising their safety, as well as uh, trying to for example, the approval of some new agents, uh, you know, we have an oral DCITB now that's available. So that could spare some of the visits of the patients uh, that come right now, five to seven days to get injectable hypomethylating agents, whether it's azacitidine or uh, decitabine. Um, I think another consideration in patients who are already in complete remission and doing well is to try to space out the cycles from every four weeks to every five or six weeks, although I would not go beyond six weeks because we have very limited data. But in clinical practice, I have actually extended to six weeks in patients who are doing very well and in CR for multiple months. So I think it's reasonable to do that in the setting of uh, COVID situation to minimize the visits to the, you know, to the clinic. Patients who are stable, we've been trying to do telemedicine visits as well with them. Um, if, you know, if, if they don't have any other specific need to come in. Some of the new consults as well, um, you know, uh, that we had as a second opinion also we tried to do remotely uh, for those patients and discussing of the clinical uh, trial options. Many of them, many of those have been on hold anyway. So I think that 
minimize the chance of the patient being inter you know interacting with the with the larger healthcare um, facilities where there could be an uh, opportunity of uh, you know uh, catching the infection. I think this the learning curve has improved a lot now. Many of the institutions, uh, including ours, and I'm, I'm sure in New York, basically um, have stringent uh, uh, visitor policies. Many patients, most of the visitors are being screened uh, basically for any symptoms, any fever. Many of the institutions are testing their providers on a regular basis and um, uh, implement a lot of uh, um, those, I think, procedures such as, you know, social distancing within the workspace, limiting the number of uh, providers and uh, 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 many institutions are mandating the use of masks basically in, in the facilities. So I think all of these things are helping to reduce the chance of nosocomial infections, which I think will be very important for uh, the patients to feel comfortable in terms of coming back to, you know, to resume routine care. There has been a lot of concern about that there will be some delays because many patients were not coming and there has been already some data about increased incidence of cardiac, um, uh, uh, basically deaths and strokes because the patients are afraid to come to the big facilities. And there have been some concerns that the same thing might happen with cancer where we have delayed diagnoses. So I think given that the COVID situation is probably going to be with us for probably a long period, at least a year or two, I would think, until some therapy, effective therapy or a vaccine becomes available, I think some of those strategies will be important to implement so that the patients um, will feel safe to come to the institutions where they can receive the, the best care um, possible. So I think here we covered most of those areas. I encourage everybody to go back to the paper in Lancet Hematology and they use the resources that are out there. Many, uh, many societies, including the American Society of Hematology, have published guidelines for specific uh, malignancies in terms of guidance for the providers and um, I would end here with any final words from uh, from you maybe start with John um, no I, I appreciate being included I think we, we covered the breadth of, of the paper um, and as I think you pointed out and we all pointed out is at the end of the day the the, the approach needs to be individualized and within the context of the environment in which um, the practitioner is is um, is providing care and um, you know I, I still think that um, as you pointed out, is that we're not done with the pandemic um, and that we still have a lot to learn. Um, but also, I think as a as a medical community, we we will see the lingering effects of this pandemic in terms of how we provide care going forward, how we approach clinical trials and, and our mentality towards uh, patient care and and um, and um, the spread of nosocomial infections. So, um, thanks for including me. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, thanks for um, being invited to this discussion. And I think what this paper highlights as well is the international collaboration with 52 co-authors on this uh, manuscript. And that really highlights um, that this is a global problem and um, that there's no one size fits all solution and everything needs to be individualized. And we are learning every single day uh, from others and uh, adopting those best practices and that we touched on today. Um, I think that will be uh, one of the um, hopefully more long lasting um, positive uh, endpoints of the COVID pandemic. And a lot of things may change in the future as well. Uh, Rory? 
I'll, uh, I'll echo John and Jan's uh, comments and sentiment. Uh, the invitation is appreciated. The conversation was great. And uh, I'll also uh, say that even more uh, more focal collaboration, I think, is uh, not only recommended, but also it's uh, it's quite good, you know, just to involve infectious disease, infectious disease our pharmacy colleagues, uh, you know, for patients that um, are otherwise complex. So um, this was a good talk. So in the end, I'd like to thank uh, my colleagues and uh, thank VG Himong for organizing this uh, um, presentation. And uh, I'm sure um, if any questions come up, any of us will be happy to um, respond uh, after the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and join in on the conversation. And finally, don't forget to visit vjhemonk.com for all the latest updates in the field.